I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show hosted by two book nerd friends who talk to other book nerds, including authors, poets, librarians, booksellers, and regular readers. Our show follows this format. We begin with Carrie's crabby dullness and my sometimes maddening enthusiasm. And it took us a little bit of time to become self-aware and recognize that we embody the grumpy sunshine trope that we so often see in literature. That is followed by a fun conversation with a new bookish friend about what they love about being a bookworm. Then we talk about what we're reading. And finally, we put our guest on the hot seat to answer some silly probing questions. We're glad you've joined us. This week, we're joined by Shelley Sackier, who has had an interesting literary journey. She is a young adult fiction writer who has recently published a book about scotch whiskey called Make It a Double, From Wretched to Wondrous, Tales of One Woman's Lifelong Discovery of Whiskey. It is part Scottish history, a love letter to the country itself, and part memoir about how her love for the spirit developed, especially after she completed an internship at a Scottish distillery. Over the course of 20 years, it has changed the trajectory of her life. Shelley now works as a whiskey educator at the Reservoir Distillery in Richmond, Virginia. Shelley uses several terms in this episode that you may not be familiar with. The most frequent one is mash bill, which is the combination of grains in a distiller's recipe. So whatever percentage of corn or rye or wheat or barley or maybe a combination of those that are used to make the spirit. But first, Carrie, when we got on here to record this, you told me that you were being grumpy, which, as we just mentioned above, is not that uncommon for you, but you're a little bit grumpier than usual. Why? I Why am. are you so grumpy today? So my husband, he drinks bourbon, you know, just a little glass pretty much every night. I'm the one who does the shopping, and so he will write it on the grocery list. And Kentucky has what I think is probably... I don't know. I mean, there's some really dumb laws on the books in various states, you know, but this is a dumb one. You can't buy alcohol on Sundays until after 1 p.m. That's a real pain in the butt for like any busy working parent who, you know, needs to get their grocery shopping done early on a Sunday morning. And maybe they, you know, want to purchase wine or beer or whatever, and they can't do it because I don't know, I, I guess that's Jesus time and, and you can't buy alcohol during Jesus. I don't understand what the rationale is, but it's stupid, especially because lots of places have church on Saturdays. So I'm like, be consistent. If that's the reason, then people shouldn't be allowed to buy alcohol between like four and seven on Saturday nights. I just, I don't know if that's a reason, but for some reason, I think it had to do with that. I just think it's dumb. Like, just let people buy their alcohol when they want to buy their alcohol when it's convenient for them. Well, because it doesn't mean just because they can't buy it during those times that they're they not drinking drink it. it during those times. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just it's silly. It's dumb. I just think it's funny that the reason that you're grumpy is because you could not buy your brown spirits today on the day that we're... <laughs> recording about Shelly Sackier and her love for brown spirits. Yeah, I bet they don't have this dumb law in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) I bet they don't. (laughs) Anyway, so it just put me in a bad mood because I've got a busy week ahead and trying to get all of my, you know, all of my shopping done, but couldn't get that particular thing on my list. And so now I guess I have to make a special trip. Oh, it's one fourteen. We need to wrap up this recording so that I can run out and it's safe now. 
you know, 14 minutes after one, it's safe for me to go by. I don't know. It's just so stupid. I just really, I think some of our laws, I don't know who decides that this is a good idea, but. Can I tell you my, I'm not really in a bad mood, but I, I am a little bit peeved. Yeah. Yesterday I had a headache off and on all day long. And I thought it might be stress because I often get stress headaches. And then last night I started getting kind of a sore throat. Uh oh. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So anyway, I was at a friend's house. I came home. I slept in a separate bedroom because I was concerned that maybe I had COVID. But I woke up this morning. I felt completely fine. No headache, no sore throat, nothing. Took a COVID test. It was negative. But yet my husband told me that I still couldn't go out and do the things that I wanted to do today because. That COVID test, I need to wait another day. Mm -hmm. And if it's negative tomorrow, then I can go. But I've been pouting all day about it. He says, you're like a grounded teenager. <laughs> and of course, if I could go out, I might not go out. But because I can't go out, I really, really, really want to go out. <laughs> as soon as and run errands. I know. As soon as somebody else tells you you can't do it, then it's like, that's exactly what you want to do. I know. I know. The thing I hate is that the COVID test... It's like a snapshot of right that second. Right. Right? Like, it's not really a predictor of... What's going to happen I 10 mean, minutes later. Yeah, or later in the day mm. or tomorrow morning. Like, you know, part of me is like, I feel completely fine. If I really had COVID, wouldn't I start to feel worse? I, and the test that I'm negative, I'm going with that. I think I'm, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have done that earlier in the pandemic. I guess I'm kind of over it now. Yeah. I know that's not my prerogative to be over it. And no, I should not expose people if possibly I have COVID. I just am. I'm just throwing a tantrum about it, Carrie. Yep. Today is tantrum day. <laughs> I, you know what I think we need? I think we both need a stiff drink and to listen to Shelly and to just just chill out. You know, that should be the, the theme of this whole episode. And the next time Shelly comes back to Kentucky, which I hope she will, I hope we she can give us some scotch and we can have a delightful conversation with her. Let's talk to Shelly. Shelly Sackier, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you again because we were able to meet you in person. Thank you so much. Yes, Carrie and, and Amy, I'm thrilled to be with you um, speaking on your podcast, just because uh, I think you guys have an exceptional podcast, one that interests me specifically because of the, the nature of my work and whatnot. But just the fact that the two of you are so entertaining to listen to and to speak with. So I'm looking forward to today. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. You have me blushing already. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carrie and I had the great privilege of coming to your book event at Carmichael's Bookstore in Louisville, Kentucky. And Louisville is like the perfect place to to have a book event for your book because, you know, in Louisville, we love some brown liquor. We love some brown. <laughs> and your book is titled Make It a Double from Wretched to Wondrous Tales of One Woman's Lifelong Discovery of Whiskey. And so this book is a lot of things. It's somewhat memoir, somewhat Scottish travel and history, and somewhat Scotch history instruction manual. So what was the impetus for you to write this book? It feels to me like I have never not been writing this book. I have worked on this compendium of stories for around two decades because I wanted to track this incredible transformation that I knew I was going through uh, because my very first 
handshake with brown spirits was a most unforgiving one. And I'd had this initial negative reaction to the spirit, you know, this real visceral, noxious to my body kind of reaction. And because of one person's enthusiasm and patient instruction, uh, and because my next experiences were then paired with things like folklore and and history and destinations and things like craftsmen and you know keen craftsmanship and food and music everything that sort of goes into the the making of this spirit i saw in real time how influential and how critical they all were to rewiring my brain to welcome something foreign you know something that i couldn't possibly appreciate without a foundation from which to understand it. You know, I'd had this stance that was, I am never going to have this drink again. And then I did a full 180. But at the beginning, when I realized that I might have been a bit judgmental, a little hasty with my judgment, um, I, I thought I need to start writing this down, canonizing this. And in my mind at that point, the whole idea of making spirits and specifically making single malt scotch or whiskeys in general, was such a, a massive topic with so much complicated data that needed to be understood. It was it, To me, it's a little bit like putting your, your Joe average fifth grader into a calculus class. <laughs> you know, there's just so much one needs to be exposed to first before all those, those hieroglyphics become beautiful. And uh, this book allows me in short order to, you know, expose people to a few crucial and fascinating things just to make their initial handshakes with brown spears or their, you know, next handshake with it to be a little bit less befuddling and a lot more enticing. So, well, not only did you do a 180, I mean, you went from being someone who was writing young adult novels and not caring for scotch whiskey at all to now you work at a whiskey distillery. <laughs> I, I know that is like a, a bit of whiplash. Um, it didn't happen that fast. Thank God, you know, time can go snail slow when you are raising children and you think this is never going to end. And so two decades worth of time that I went from never going to try it again to suddenly, oh, I'm making it and teaching people about it. And, you know, this is my life's work. There was a, a, a lot of experiences that were thrown at me. And I, I think I'm just so incredibly lucky to have had all of those experiences because I don't think I would be here today with, you know, just that first initial taste of being like, this is horrible to the second taste of like, oh, somebody introduced me to it again. And I had a very different experience. And now I'm going to go off into the world of, of distillation. That's, you know, that's not how it happened. <laughs> it's much more complicated and, and a much more long and lengthy journey. Uh, but yeah, I write middle grade and young adult. And believe it or not, there is whiskey inside every single one of my young adult stories. <laughs> really? Do not, do not tell my editors this or the publishers because <laughs> mom, mom's the word. All right. <laughs> you know, fifth grade science, it's, it's all science anyway. This is distillation. It's all science and biology and engineering and chemistry. <laughs> So I'm curious, you said you'd been writing this book a little bit for the last 20 years, but in terms of writing this book, when you sort of started pulling it all together into book form, how was the writing different from writing your novels? And, and was it different harder or different easier or just different? Talk to us a little <laughs> bit about that process. <laughs> 
Yes, it is very, very different. Writing fiction, you get to make things up. It is so much easier to write fiction than it is to write nonfiction from my perspective. And I'm sure there are plenty of, of authors out there who feel differently, but just from where I sit, I have had many conversations with my agent uh, since diving into the nonfiction realm. And I said, the next time I get any kind of great ideas about writing a nonfiction book, you have to sit me down and ask if I've fallen down the stairs, if I've had any kind of head injury, because it is really, really hard. So with the nonfiction stuff, there's the requirements of like writing a proposal and you have to write a business plan for the book, right? Which involves like researching all the demographics of the people who are presumably going to read it. And you know you have to know their ages and their wages. What do they make for a living? What do they do for a living? And down to like, what is their blood type? It's crazy to me to think that there's so much research that has to go into the nonfiction proposal. And I learned an enormous amount. I learned an enormous amount while I was writing technical manuals for our distillery. It was one of the jobs that I was tasked with. And it's very, very difficult for me to write technical manuals, not because I cannot decipher what all the pieces of equipment do or or convey to other people, the operators who are going to be using it, how to use them. But it's just none of the pieces of the equipment get to have dialogue or emotions. <laughs> you know, fermentation tanks do not have feelings. And this is what I was told to me <laughs> when I was told, oh, you're going to be writing a technical manuals for us. And I'm like, can I just have a couple of dialogue tags? <laughs> it would make it so much more interesting if they were all communicating with one another. So from that perspective, you know, the writing of nonfiction I found was much more difficult. And I, I really do like to lie for a living. I think the fiction aspect of, of writing novels is, is just so creative. It's really lovely. But the putting together the memoir, the essays, and, and that's what they basically were, was like every single experience I had, whether I was in Scotland or back in the United States, having something taught to me or being with a mentor back then, everything that I experienced, I like rushed to my desk and wrote down in this, uh, you know, essay-like form, which was sort of a very, very story-like form with a beginning, a middle and an end. And only eight, 900 words or so, just because I was trying to create my own technical manual, but I was also trying to write a Cliff's Notes version of it because I basically have the memory of like a goldfish with a head injury. So <laughs> anything that I really want to hold on to, I have to do over and over and over again in order to sort of cement it on a cellular level. So writing those stories was very helpful for myself. There was no idea that I was going to be writing a memoir. It was just, I want to learn about this subject and it's really important to me. And how can I teach myself what I had already learned and forgotten when I needed to reclaim that information? So that's a bit how the memoir came about. And I have to say, it was everything was put onto my blog, which I started a bazillion years ago. I still have it today. And this was when my agent was like, oh, I think you have enough stories that we can probably pitch it as a memoir. That sounds good. But the wonderful, most, I think, appealing thing, and, and probably a, a very heavy factor as to you know why a publisher got interested in the in the idea of a memoir in the first place was because years ago, when I first started writing this blog, I got an email from a, a Londoner who happens to live in Malmo, Sweden, who is an illustrator and an actor. And he said, 
I just want to let you know that your essays are begging to be put in cartoon form. And would you mind if I took a swing at it for free? And so, you know, I thought about it for all of a hot minute and I'm like, uh, for free. <laughs> okay. Yes. And then secondly, how many of us ever get an opportunity to have their entire life put into a comic strip? So he started doing this with all of my essays. And, you know, in the end, there are just like hundreds and hundreds of, of these beautiful illustrations or really funny. It's a little bit like living in the middle of the far side. You see yourself as this cartoon, but Robin Gott was just fantastic. So when the publisher came and, and made an offer for the memoir, I negotiated in my contract to have his illustrations present in them. Oh. And I, I was like, I would like a hundred of them. And they said, you get five. Oh. <laughs> Because illustrations are really expensive. So, you know, I always like to tell people if anybody wants to see the rest of Robin Gott's incredible talent, they can just go to my website and see all of them for free, which is, you know, ShellySackier.com. And it's so, so worth it. He's such a talent. <laughs> I have to ask, so I, I heard Bangy, are, are we getting to hear the distillery at work? Just a little bit. I am sorry about that. I have told everybody, like, please stop fixing the still or leave those fermentation tanks alone. But, you know, when you do work in a distillery, it is never quiet. Usually right. somebody's swearing in the background. So It's great ambiance for the interview. Well, I think this is a great segue for us to talk a little bit about whiskey, the thing that being distilled in the background where you are. Uh -huh. So Make It a Double is about your passion for scotch whiskey. And we here in Kentucky, we thrive on bourbon whiskey. So tell yes. us a little bit about what makes scotch scotch. I love this question. And I do want to point out that I don't totally ignore all of the beautiful American whiskeys out there. Uh, because obviously, at the moment, I work for an American distillery. <laughs> I should have a passion for it. And I do. But that came later. So that I write about that in the book. It's sort of like the last 25% of it is in how I got where I am today. But I think, you know, maybe I'll broaden your question out just a tiny bit. Because I often get asked by people, what is the difference between whiskey with an E and whiskey without an E? Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a super important subject uh, that I am always happy to bring some clarity to. And my answer is that, you know, the only thing that one can decipher from the spelling of the word whiskey is how that country likes to spell the word whiskey. <laughs> So there are no clues one can extrapolate, you know, about the, the mash bill or the production process. And when we define the word whiskey loosely described, we can say that whiskey is a distilled spirit derived from yeast and water and grain. And then it's just when we look at each country that we sometimes assign a grain to them based on what they are best known for. So, you know, of course, when we think of Scotland, we think of scotch and that's made from malted barley. And when we think of the United States, we envision bourbon, which is primarily corn and, and Canada. That evokes these big, bold, spicy ryes, right? But it, it doesn't mean that these countries do not use other grains, because, of course, they most certainly do. Uh, it's just that, you know, you cannot make a whiskey and call it scotch anywhere other than in Scotland. And you cannot make a whiskey and call it bourbon anywhere other than in the United States. So these names are proprietary and they are legislatively governed based on strict geography. So that is basically the difference. <laughs> 
What about Irish whiskey? Well, Irish whiskey has a, such an interesting history, and it's going through this marvelous resurgence at the moment. But at one point, you know, Ireland uh, was the whiskey capital of the world. They just had a, a lot of beautiful distilleries making very individual whiskeys, and they used mash bills that are sometimes a little bit, comparatively speaking to like scotch and whatnot, a little different because you'll find oats in the mash bill. So there ah. might be unmalted barley and malted barley and oats. And then sometimes they throw in wheat and sometimes they throw in rye. The interesting mash bills of, of Ireland. Now, of course, then there was a time period where Irish whiskeys just disappeared. And there was a, a homogenization of all these distilleries that went from like you know, 28 of them all the way down to just two. And so they, these big guys just bought up the little guys. And then all those interesting mash bills just sort of disappeared. And it was as a lot of people have a misconception about Irish whiskey today based on that homogenization, like what was available for so many decades when when the Irish world of whiskey was was very small and narrow. But today, certainly during the last probably about 10, 12, maybe 13 years, all these wonderful craft distilleries have been popping up all over that country and bringing back these old recipes and recreating pot-stilled distillations and, and just making some of the most marvelous flavors. So I think that their resurgence of joining the rest of the world in being, you know, top-notch whiskey makers is just sort of right on the precipice. Let's talk about some of those nuances a little bit, because you mentioned your first taste of scotch when you were in Scotland. I think you, you were in your early 20s. Your assessment was pretty terrible, but then the bartender where you were found you a whiskey that had a better flavor profile. And in the book, there's one section where you talk a lot about peat and some of the the tastes and the smells that can kind of work their way into scotch. So tell us a little bit about that experience, the, the first scotch you had, and what was it that made the second one better? Yes. So to preface my first and second scotch experiences, it's good to note that whiskeys, you know, I'm sure like many other spirits have flavor profiles that are of varying types, just depending upon where they're made along with the ingredients that are present within them. I think it's a little bit like working your way up the Scoville scale, you know, that, that measurement of heat from chili peppers, mm. you know, you really shouldn't give someone the equivalent of pepper spray to drink when you <laughs> should be giving them something like pimento juice or poblanos that are purified to get a feel for those flavors. So my very first dram of scotch was from a distillery called Oban, and it's on the uh, west coast of Scotland in the Highlands. And it's a beautiful, beautiful distillery where I traveled to it and, and took a tour of that distillery. And as one does, typically at the end of a distillery tour, you get to have a dram of that magical elixir that they work so hard to create. And this was my very first sip of brown spirits at all. And I thought that it was horrible. It was just very unpalatable. You know, it was full of spice and smoke and it felt offensive to my taste buds. And I thought, why would anybody make the mistake of having this a second time? <laughs> this is just, why would you try to get used to this? <laughs> and then it was very shortly thereafter when we were 
seated in this beautiful hotel outside of Edinburgh and the barkeep came up and, you know, would you like to have a dram of whiskey before you have dinner? And my then husband said, you know, don't waste your precious scotch on her. She has no tongue for it. And, you know, the barkeep was like, well, what did you have? And my husband said, I gave her a dram of Oban and you would have thought I was giving her poison. And, you know, the barkeep clutches his chest and he falls backward and he's like, oh, you did. You did give her poison. You can't start somebody off on that side of the flavor profile if they've never had that before. So he then brought out this beautiful display of six bottles of whiskey that at the time were being advertised as the classic malts of Scotland. And it was a this big marketing production that was being put on by one of the biggest drinks conglomerates. And they were trying to have people understand that Scotland could be divided up into different flavor camps, different flavor profiles. And they were assigning those flavor camps and profiles to regions. So Scotland is divided up into like five or six regions. It depends on who you speak with uh, as, you know, the lowlands and the Speysides and the highlands and the islands. So all of these places in Scotland have different flavors. And so they were trying to match a bottle with each place. So a distillery with each place in Scotland to say, this is what the Speysides taste like. And this is what the Lowlands taste like. So this barkeep brought out a bottle uh, from the Lowland area. And he said, this is referred to as the, the Garden of Scotland. And it's also referred to as a ladies malt. And it will taste and smell of flowers and cheesecake and vanilla. And I said to him, you're making this sound like a, a marmalade cosmopolitan, hand it over. And after tasting that, you know, just that that first nose and that first sip, it was such a massive difference from what I just had a day before at Oban. And it did have these beautiful notes, these cereal notes and biscuity notes, all the floral notes and ripe fruits. And, and you know, as you make your way through the range of Scotland and her all of her profiles for single malt scotch, you know, you then move up to like stewed fruits and nuts and toffee and then make the needle shift to chocolates and marmalades. And then finally, you know, you're at the end of that spectrum where it's all peat and smoke and brine, you know, things that are just incredibly in your face. They, they make you sit up and take notice to all those flavors. So most people probably cannot start on the most prolific side of the, you know, that flavor spectrum with without having some damage done to their taste buds. It's an education and a really pleasurable one. So uh, yeah, a big change for me going from hating it to loving it. So what was that second one? You said the that, first oh, one. that second one was called Glen Kinchy. It's beautiful. It's really lovely. I still, I keep a bottle on my shelf at all times, just as uh, the proof that uh, again and again in my life, I have been proven wrong. And that bottle stands as testament to um, how I am very quick to judge. <laughs> Maybe I ought not to be. So you were in your early 20s when you first visited Scotland and make it a double. Besides you know, talking about the Scotch whiskey, it's also sort of a love letter to that country. So what did you love about it during those early visits? And what do you love about it now? Oh, Scotland, it just makes me sigh as I say the word. It's, it's one of those things that I could not really explain to people as it was first happening to me. I had 
this initial experience of getting off the airplane in Glasgow and stepping foot on that patch of earth and then feeling like somehow I had been here before, right? Like these were my people and I had lived other lives before. It's just, it's weird because I'm not that kind of a person. I just, I don't get all those woo-woo feelings about, about anything. And so hearing me, my own head, uh, which is much more scientifically minded, much more mathematically calculated, I need proof for everything, suddenly have to deal with feelings. That was weird. You know, that was very, very uncomfortable, but it was experience after experience of hearing the stories that were being told, all the mythology that is so rich and ripe within that country, the folklore. And the book has a good handful of them, you know, to whet the appetite for people who feel like a connection between the drink and the distillery's history. And there are just so many ghosts that are attached to all those distilleries, which I love. I'm very drawn to that kind of a thing. So the stories were one thing because as a storyteller, I want to find other people who can pull a good yarn. And the Scotsmen are absolutely prize winning at that. And then it was the food, right? There's just so much good food in Scotland. Everything from like the vegetables grown to the the venison and the salmon that you eat. And of course, they deep fry everything. Like if you've never had a deep fried Mars bar, you are missing out on a very huge section of of nutrition. I do suggest you try that. The conviviality of every pub welcome, every spontaneous Kaylee, the, the parties that are hosted. And again, in the pub, there are so many yarns that are spun, apocryphal or true, it doesn't matter. They're just so worthy of hearing. It's seeing the people with their family ties and the connections to their land and to their communities, to their villages, to their distilleries. I have to also include Highland cows, I think, as long <laughs> ornaments go. Those guys are the best. They're just amazing. And, it, you know, it's a land that produces so many different smells. Like the peat is so prevalent, the seaweed, the iodine from the ocean, the smoke and the heather. And it's a land that produces so many different flavors as well. So every distillery has its own unique fingerprint that you just can't reproduce anywhere else. So that, in a nutshell, that is what I love about Scotland back then and what I still love about Scotland today. My family were hoping to go to Scotland next summer. You know, reading your book, I just felt like, oh, you know, like building that into anticipation of, oh, what might we see? So, Oh, I definitely wanted it to be a sensory experience as you're going from chapter to chapter because, yeah. you know, you want, you want to be there with that author. And I think stories don't work for people as well if it's only about one individual's experience, but it's, you know, about taking that reader with you and pulling them into your world so that they are right there, you know, riding in the bucket seat next to you or, you know, walking along that path and tasting that same thing. But perhaps, you know, the most important thing about your story is, I think, the story of you realizing some things about yourself. So in the book, it talks about how your first husband gifted you an internship to learn how <laughs> scotch is made at a distillery in Scotland. And yet, you know, you really have mixed feelings about going there. Um, and you say at one point, quote, he was forever Eliza doolittling me from a before into an after. So... Talk to us a little bit about what did you ultimately realize about yourself over time as you were thinking through and, and writing this book in steps and in stages? Yes, that is a big question. But I think the nuts and bolts of it is that I realized that imposter syndrome is real and that I, like 
so many other people of every gender, doesn't have to just be women, suffer from it and that it will act as this impossible mountain pass, you know, if you allow it to. You know, it's one thing to say, just realize it's not true and get on with it. But that process of getting on with it is really difficult. And sometimes it comes with time or it comes with experience. It might lessen with experiences or sometimes um, for some folks, it might lessen with peer given accolades. But for some of us, it's always going to be situational, right? And we need to, to muddle through when it rears its unwanted head and accept the challenges that it might always be a passenger that is next to us. So I found that that was probably one of the, the biggest realizations was I will probably always keep that as a constant companion, but it doesn't have to steer the car. That imposter idea, do you, do you feel like that's something that you hope other women take from that? Oh, God, yes. I think as women, there have been you know many, many times where I've been in conversations with, with women who are so talented in their field and so accomplished, and they too just understand that that's going to be likely a part of their life. And, and, and sometimes we do it to ourselves, and sometimes it is gender-inflicted, which is a shame because I don't think anybody should try and undermine one's potential, but it does happen. It's a competitive world that we live in. And if you can look for any, you know, foot up to get above your competition, people will utilize that. So I do want women to understand, you know, certainly that this industry that I work in has changed and that it is much more welcoming of women and that it's worth muscling their way into. It is. It's it's still, you know, in some ways challenging, but one must develop faith in oneself. And I think for me, it was curiosity that fueled my passion. And I eventually had to tell myself that it doesn't matter how much learning I have acquired, as long as I still have this enormous amount of curiosity, that's reason enough for me to be where I am. Even though women are starting to make headway in the spirits industry, it's still, you know, a pretty dude heavy place. I know for myself, I just went to the liquor store the other day and it was like me surrounded by like six guys. And I was just in the checkout lane, right? And I'm like, this feels a little uncomfortable. But when you were doing that internship in Scotland, you know, you were the only woman. The other two women that you mentioned, they were there to cook the meals. So you were there to learn the guys. So now as a professional, you educate people about spirits at Reservoir Distillery. Do you ever have to you know, sort of deal with a little bit of mansplaining. How do you sort of deal with that? Is it a problem where you have guys come in and think that they know more than than you do just because you're a woman? Yes, I, I would say yes, it still happens. Uh, it's not as frequent. Maybe I've just um, become inured to it over the years, but it's not as noticeable to me as it was certainly in the very beginning. And things have changed on the whole, just not as frequently. I get the, why are you here glances or the, you know, little lady title, <laughs> but I look past all of that stuff and I view it through the optics of humor. Number one, in order to save my sanity and number two, you know, cause murder is wrong. And number <laughs> two, I collect more chapters from my books. So I, I look at this as, okay, great. You're falling into my research category. This is awesome. Just keep talking, you know? <laughs> and, and then I have so much more to write about, but you know, although the industry is changing, 
it is very much this slow moving ship, right? And it takes a great deal of effort and time to shift the, the direction of that ship 180 degrees. And one day I hope that we will get there and we won't have to say that this industry is gender split in any way. It's just whomever is interested in, in being a part of it can be a part of it because there's room for everyone. There really is maybe I'm dreaming this, but I think I just read a news article. Now they're starting to realize that women, I I don't know if if they have a more sensitive nose or more sensitive palate that is actually a real boon to the, the profession. Have you read anything about that? Yes, I have read a few white papers that suggest that the academic research is there and provable. I wouldn't say that this is something that I would, you know, paint all women with better abilities to nose and taste because I think, you know, every individual is different. We're all biologically different. But perhaps there might be something to do with the amount of receptors within our olfactory um, epithelium that are communicating to the neurons within our brain. And that yet remains to be seen. Part of my job is to uh, memorize scent. And, you know, I'm usually surrounded by hundreds of vials of, you know, small alcoholic vials filled with aroma compounds and whatnot. And we as human beings, we don't make a good practice of memorizing scent or taste. And so, you know, when the object that we associate with that scent or that taste is absent, as it is when we're drinking spirits or wine, then we get really frustrated because, you know, it's on the tip of our tongue. You know, you you think you can articulate it, but the words just won't come to you. And it can be, you know, hugely frustrating. So that that's part of my job is to be able to memorize those things. And I think that most people can do that. They can definitely improve their ability to recognize different scents and flavors if they're doing doing it blind. It's fun. I, you know, I'm constantly having parties where I'm like, hey, close your eyes, taste this. <laughs> and people are like, wait a second. <laughs> this sounds like it's a good time for us to take a, a quick little break. When we come back, Shelly's going to join us and we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Shelly Sackier and with Carrie. Carrie, what do you have going on over there? What are you reading? Well, I finished a book not too long ago. So many of these books, I've got so many books on my TBR that I don't remember where I heard about them. But this sounded really interesting to me. It's called The Monsters of Rookhaven by Padraig Kenny. He's an Irish writer. And this is actually the first book I think of a two book series. So the story begins with a family, but it is an unusual family. So one of the main characters, Mirabelle, she doesn't seem to have any unusual powers, but her uncle Bertram can turn into a grizzly bear and her aunt Eliza's body is made up of spiders. So the family is weird with a capital W in part because of a certain behavior that you need to read the book to discover. All members of the family, except for Mirabelle, engage in this particular behavior. And this behavior was deemed sufficiently threatening so that the the nearby town and the family created this truce and a spell was put around the house to keep regular people away. Unfortunately, the spell, it gets broken or damaged a little bit. And so this brother and sister pair are able to get to this house. 
And they're taken in by the monsters of Rookhaven. And the brother does something unfortunate, which allows one of the monsters to escape. And this escape helps another monster, who's not part of this family, latch on to the family's whereabouts. So I guess he kind of senses them because the spell has been broken. So the monsters of Rookhaven and the human community in the nearby town are now under a great threat. You know, and I can't tell you too much about it because then you'll you'll just know too much about the stories. People who love stories about monsters and creepy things, I, I want them to read the book. It is a wonderful gothic novel, I would say for middle grade and older. I'm almost 50 and I like sped through the book. It's perfectly creepy and it keeps you up reading entirely too late. I did that many, many nights. And I've seen some reviewers compare this book to the works of Jonathan Oxier, whose book, The Night Gardener, was one that I read and really, really liked. So I highly recommend it called The Monsters of Rookhaven by Patrick Kenny. So Mm. that's, that's what I read recently. Oh, yum. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I like gothic. Yeah. yeah. Gothic is my jam. Okay. So, Shelly, what, yes. what have you been reading? So, there is a book that I have read probably, I don't know, at least five times. And I always go back to it. And, and anytime that people ask me for a book recommendation, it's the first thing that I always pull out of my, my back pocket. And it's called A Season to Taste. Mm. This is written by Molly Birnbaum. And Molly Birnbaum wrote it in, uh, I think, 2011 or so. So, it, you know, it is a, a little bit of time on it, but it is timeless in its story and subject matter. So Molly is just out of college and she's about to start training at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, and she's, you know, she's on her way to becoming a chef. And then one day while running out in Boston, which is where she lives, she gets hit by a car. And so apart from all the physical injuries she's experienced, which are just, you know, pretty horrendous, she also loses her sense of smell. Hmm. Now what, right? You know, for a person like that, you're like, oh, God, life crushing injuries, career over. Depression ensues. So what comes next is basically how she sets off on this massive quest to, to learn how to smell again. And she explains in the book, the science of olfaction. She meets a bucket load of experts in this field, you know, including, including like Oliver Sacks, who I adore. She meets perfumers. She meets scientists who study flavor. You know, this is all with a determined pursuit of, of retraining her sense of smell and her sense of taste. And I mean, she even goes so far as to enroll in a perfume school in the South of France, just Hmm. so that she can better understand what's happening to her and how smell works. So the descriptions that Molly Birnbaum uses to describe scent and taste and feeling, you know, all the sensory bits that encompass flavor, that massive umbrella of flavor, they're just so magnetic. It's the, it's her language is so enticing, you know, so much so that you feel that you're feeling, you're smelling, you're tasting everything with her. There's a lot of Ruth Reichel in her style of writing Mm. too. So if you're a fan of- God, I love Ruth Reichel. I think I've read everything she's written. Oh God, yes. She's amazing. So, you know, ultimately uh, Molly begins to cook again. And then of course, you know, certain things change. I'm not going to spoil the story for anybody, but seriously, in our time of COVID and, you know, the wretchedness of anosmia, that's the, you know, the loss of smell and taste that so many people are experiencing while 
going through this wretched plague. It's a beautiful, just wholly captivating book that I think a lot of people would fall in love with. Certainly, if for nothing else, than just her incredibly descriptive and gorgeous language. I've already put it on my TBR. It sounds fascinating. <laughs> it's good. A season to taste. Yeah. All right. Well, Amy... What, what are you going to hit us with this week? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of fair warning here because <laughs> this has been the summer of true crime books for me. <laughs> I've binged several really good true crime books this summer. So I apologize now in advance if my reading doesn't seem super varied and I talk about some true crime books over the next month or so. But I have good reason. My daughter is home from college and it is a genre that both she and I agree on. And so we've listened to several audiobooks in the car during road trips and things like that. So the one that I want to tell you about today is one that I finished a few weeks ago. It's called The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer by Liza <laughs> Rodman and Jennifer Jordan. And it was published in 2021. I mean, it has a great title, right? It pulls you in. So one of the authors, Liza Rodman, spent her summers as a child in Provincetown, Massachusetts, on the very tip of Cape Cod back in the late 60s. Her mother was a teacher and a single mother. And so during the summer, Liza, her mom, and her little sister would go to Provincetown during the tourist season where her mother headed up the housekeeping team at a motel that a friend owned. So Liza's relationship with her mother was always tense and cold. Her mother was always looking for someone to babysit, she and her sister, and her mother wasn't super choosy about it. Her mother had married very young and she immediately had children. So when she divorced, what her mother really wanted to do is go out and have fun, which isn't necessarily an easy thing to do when you have two little kids. So she would ask pretty much everybody. She even asked somebody in a grocery store who she'd never met before if they'd be willing to watch her kids. So where Liza found love and belonging was from some of the other people who lived or worked at the motel and babysat her. And some of those people included a housekeeper and her handsome son who served as a handyman named Tony Costa. Tony was fun and charming and always got the girls ice cream and took them around town in his truck. He, in fact, was a good babysitter. But Tony, it turns out, was also a serial killer who killed at least four women. But Liza didn't know any of this and didn't find this out until her mother told her when her mother was in her 70s. So there are two authors for this book because of the structure. Liza writes the chapters about her experiences growing up, her dysfunctional family, her difficult relationship with her mother, and her experiences with Tony. So much of this is the way she remembers it as a child. And the second author, Jennifer Jordan, is a journalist. And so she gives us the investigative details about Tony Costa's life and the murders. And it's a much more removed version than where Liza's is personal. And I like this structure because it gives you really two perspectives on the same person. Something that I'm always really fascinated by is how one person can have so many different aspects to their personality. And that might be why I enjoy true crime books. So I really appreciated this book to show the reader how fine the line can be between someone who could have a very caring and nurturing side with children maybe, but on the other hand, can be a serial killer of adult women. It also paints a picture of a time period, what things were like in the late 60s and how the counterculture springing up with, with much more sexual freedom and drug use affected how the cases were investigated. 
and how different parenting was back then. I mean, today parents, you know, suffer from helicopter parenting. So the thought of having someone that you randomly met at the grocery store watch your kids is sort of unfathomable. But, you know, that's an example that she uses in the book. So I listened to this on audiobook. It was narrated by Andy Arndt and Ada Rilusko. And the two narrators who read this read it the separate sections like it's written by the two authors. I like this book because of the point of view of Liza's made it really unique. I don't think I would be half as interested in it without her portions. But if you like true crime, I would recommend it. I was going to say, you you said, you know, modern parents wouldn't do that. I think if you have three or more children, you would consider it. Because <laughs> Okay, let's say this. You would want to do it. But don't, you think, but don't you think social mores now or even like that book we read, The School for Good Mothers. Someone yes. would arrest you if you did that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I say that I don't mean this, but it's like my... My first child, you know, I I wouldn't let her do anything. And by the time my third one, I'm like, don't run with a crack pipe, you know, which I mean, we don't have any crack pipes in our house. But, you know, kind of that same like, whatever, I don't care. Are you breathing? Do you have a pulse? Watch my kids. So, yeah. (laughs) Again, the name of the book is The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer by Liza Rodman and Jennifer Jordan. All right. Well, let's take another quick break and then we're going to put Shelby in the hot seat for her three in the third degree when we come back. We're back with Shelly Sackier and we're going to ask her her questions, very probing questions. So number one, Shelly, in your earlier years, you were a big band singer. And from what I seem to recall from the book event, you mentioned that you toured all over the country. How did this happen? And what was the best experience from that time? Well, I could be cheeky and say that my parents left me with somebody at the grocery store to look after them for a while. (laughs) But that was not the truth. I mean, it did have a lot to do with my parents. I I came from a very, very musical family where my mother was a classical violinist and my dad was just a guy who could pick up any instrument and just know intuitively how to play that. It was really quite annoying, but... But I trained classically, so music came before our homework did in our house. It was just uh, one of those things where everybody played a lot of instruments. And, and you know, it was the, the mindset of we only practice on the days that we eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they started us so early on instruments. That was the feeling of I don't remember not having my violin or not playing the piano or not having an oboe here. And I ended up leaving home around 15 and touring with a, a bunch of different programs programs and bands and, you know, big band swing orchestras. That was primarily what I did. So I toured with a lot of the guys from Stan Kenton's orchestra and Harry James's orchestras and and Frank Sinatra's guys. And, you know, all of these all older white men, they taught me how to compose and how to arrange and how to talk to people who were, you know, three times my age and much more educated or educated in a very different field. And very, very importantly, how to handle unwanted attention. Um, they were basically extra parents and they were incredibly important mentors of mine. And, you know, I disappointed a good chunk of my instructors because everyone had pretty much molded me to become an opera singer. I was going to be going into into classical music and mostly opera. And then I said, 
see a sailors, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the big band thing. And, uh, you know, that was considered highly uneducated music, but it didn't matter. That's, that's where my heart was. Uh, and so having this marvelous opportunity to travel with all of these people, I certainly did get a different kind of an education and uh, I would never trade it. Not for, not for anything in the world. I loved it. That's Were you amazing. in high school? I was uh, in high school, so I came back and forth in between tours, did high school, finished it. I had a very unusual education where I, I schooled in conservatories and did all my academics in big chunks, you know, got all those uh, requirements done and whatnot. And then most of my high school uh, years were just classes of arrangement and composition and and studying, you know, different languages in order to be able to sing in them and theory. It was everything I had ever wanted. It was marvelous, but it's, it's not a very usual upbringing. So yeah. yes, I finally did finish high school and whatnot, but I learned a lot more from these guys than I ever did in a classroom. That's yeah. for sure. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. All right. Question two, you got your pilot's license, although I don't get the sense that you regularly fly planes. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, I did get my pilot's license, private pilot's license. I never initially had the urge to do that, but you know, I was married to someone who had a poor sense of direction <laughs> Not to mention, you know, this this sort of the erroneous state of mind that if he simply mentioned his name with enough emphasis of importance, uh, then he could land anywhere he wanted to, military or general <laughs> aviation. It didn't matter. Uh, so I wasn't terribly comfortable with that. And so I learned to fly. <laughs> and also, you know, certainly I think it, it was important because my life was at stake. And if there was only two of us in the cockpit and something happened to him, I had better learn how to land that sucker. But also I hold Eleanor Roosevelt in very high esteem. And uh, I keep one of her quotes as my life mantra, which is, and I'm, I'm going to get her quote wrong, but to, you know, every day do something that scares the hell out of you. Mm. So flying was one of those things that was, again, at the time, not done by a whole heck of a lot of women. And it fell into the category of nothing is going to get in my way except me and that little thing called fear. Uh, so, so do it, right? I was just constantly trying to prove my own self wrong. That's the, the whole pilot story. Wow. Do you fly planes very often anymore? or it's just I don't. It's so expensive. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't fly any longer. But, you know, I could still land a plane if I had to. If somebody was in need of, of it, I could raise my hand and be like, yeah, I think I could get this down. <laughs> Most of us will make it. <laughs> okay, your last question. I don't know if most people technically know what haggis is, but it is a Scottish dish. I'm going to let you describe the rest of it. It is a dish that strikes fear and many Americans' hearts. <laughs> but you liked it so much when you were in Scotland that you named a pet of yours haggis. I did. Uh, yep. So tell us exactly what haggis is and what is your favorite way to eat it? So... Um, growing up in Wisconsin, uh, where I did in the northwest part of the state, it is very much a usual thing uh, for people to to do a lot of gathering of all your necessities on your own, right? So you fish and you you hunt and uh, you grow your own vegetables and whatever it is that you can't grow or fish or trap yourself, you basically just barter for. So hunting was a part of our life. And if you are a hunter and living up in that area, that, that part of the world, um, you grow very accustomed to eating nose to tail, right? So for us, hunting wasn't a sport, it was grocery shopping. 
And so you're thinking about just how can you actually, can you hold on one second? The distillery cat wants to leave my office. (laughs) One sec, just let me let her out. Okay. Everybody needs to have a good mouser. Can I tell you how much I love that there's a distillery cat? That's awesome. (laughs) Yes. So if that that whole nose to tail concept is one where you don't waste anything. And so I found that very similar concept again in Scotland, where people who are growing all different kinds of livestock when it's time for for slaughtering and whatnot, you're using as much as of it as possible because, you know, things are expensive, ingredients are expensive. And um, and oftentimes very difficult to procure if you live far, far away and on an island someplace. So haggis is basically all the parts of a sheep that nobody else wants. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much how I describe it. So it's it's a heart and lung and pluck, and you don't want to know what some of those things are. But um, it's some parts of sheep that are made into a sausage-like thing. So uh, you mix those meat and organs with uh, oats and suet. Again, another ingredient people are like, oh, yum. And spices, all different kinds of spices. And then you encapsulate it in some sort of container, which usually tends to be an empty sheep stomach, and then you boil it. (laughs) Now, that's the bare basics uh, recipe for making haggis, but it does not mean that it has to taste like it sounds because (laughs) there are so many people who really, really, really know how to make. And, you know, again, like I said, it's just basically a sausage, but they they know how to make this sausage shine with all of its flavors and whatnot. And and there are a lot of people who don't know how to make it as well. So that's why it gets such a bad, a bad rap. But I think if you find yourself a Michelin rated chef, uh, you should have him or her make that for you. Uh, you should be eating it at like a Burns night party and it should be accompanied by a lot of whiskey and blaring bagpipes because... <laughs> Everything just goes so, so well with whiskey and bagpipes. Carrie, when you go to Scotland, I want to hear about you eating haggis. I That'll be the first food that I shove into my 14-year-old's face. He's the pickiest <laughs> eater in the world. <laughs> Don't forget about the deep-fried Mars bars. They're yeah. very important. It has to be dessert. I'll be like, you get to have a deep-fried Mars bar, but you have to try this first. <laughs> Don't tell him what it is. No, oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So <laughs> this spring, my daughter daughter and I went to Ecuador and I had guinea pig. And so I have not been able to live that down, but I'm <laughs> hoping that if I can convince, you know, my husband and children to have haggis, if we end up going to Scotland, that that oh, will kind of, so worth it. they won't it is worth it. to me for, for the guinea pig. So well, think, you're going to be able to dine on that tail after you do it forever. <laughs> so do you try it just for the sake of retelling the story? <laughs> Shelly, thanks so much for taking time out of your day and, and talking to us about your book. Again, your book is called Make It a Double from Wretched to Wondrous Tales of One Woman's Lifelong Discovery of Whiskey. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. It was a total pleasure, Amy and Carrie. Thank you so much for inviting me and good luck to the two of you. I hope that your podcast lives a long and lengthy life because it is so worth it. You can follow Shelly Sackier on Instagram at Shelly Sackier or at her website, ShellySackier.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. 
We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. And just a side note, we do a lot of book giveaways on our Instagram page almost every week. So uh, be sure to check us out and enter some of those. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Ford Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.